Join me in your Bibles in Acts chapter 23 for today's reading of God's Word. We'll be reading the first 11 verses. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray together today as we come to God's Word. Our God and our Father, as we come to your holy, living, active, God-breathed Word, we ask for your help to understand it. We pray, Holy Spirit, to illuminate your Word to our minds. Help us to know its meaning and its truth. Help us to trust it. Help us to have confidence in it. Help it to act as the double-edged sword that it is to penetrate our hearts and our minds and our souls and our lives to the very core of our beings and to expose anything there that needs to be transformed into the image of your glory. And Father, cause it to renew our minds and transform our lives. We pray for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we come to God's Word this morning and as we continue to take in Luke's narrative of all the events that took place when Paul came to Jerusalem, I want for us to look at this passage, and we're going we're gonna to take two weeks here to look at it, but I want for us to look at this passage, these 11 verses, asking ourselves what things we allow to influence our attitudes and our behavior as we live our lives in this world. Because it's all too easy, isn't it? And if we put ourselves in Paul's shoes here and ask ourselves, how would we be responding if we were in Paul's place? It's all too easy to to give ourselves permission, and we do this all the time in our lives, to give ourselves permission to harbor certain attitudes 
that God's Word defines as fleshly. And to give ourselves permission to behave in certain ways that God's Word calls sinful, but we do it anyways because we allow ourselves to be more influenced by the circumstances that are happening to us, or by the worldly culture around us, and what's typical of people in the world around us, taking our cues from them, adopting the prevailing wisdom of the world, being shaped by the attitudes and behaviors that are typical in our country and in our culture, instead of submitting ourselves always to the ultimate authority of Almighty God and yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit in bearing His fruit in our hearts and defining our behavior by the infallible standard of God's holiness which is revealed in His Word. That's what we see the Apostle Paul doing as he comes to Jerusalem. Not perfectly, as we'll see next week, but conforming his behavior, not according to his own feelings and his own desires and and what's going on around him and giving himself permission because of the circumstances that are happening to him to do things that dishonor God. But what we see Paul doing is obeying and trusting and walking according to the fruit of the Spirit that God is bearing in him. And the God-given mechanism, the human faculty which God made, which is a fundamental part of our image-bearing human makeup, the thing that God designed to inform our souls and our minds of what is right, what is good to do, what is beautiful and honoring to the Lord. That God-given faculty is what Paul speaks of here in the very first verse of our text called conscience in the Bible. Conscience. Every human being has a conscience. And the conscience is this God-given mechanism within our soul that, that passes moral judgment on our attitudes and on our thoughts and on our actions and alerts us to whether or not they're good or bad. And what I want us to focus on this morning is Paul's appeal to his conscience here. And we're going to unpack that word conscience and understand what it is and what it isn't and how it operates so that we can learn to live according to conscience as Paul says he did here. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience. And I wonder if we're able to say that ourselves. Here's the thing about human conscience as we're going to see today. The thing about it is this, that just like any other part of our human makeup, especially like parts of our physical bodies, like think about your heart or think about your brain, they're made to work certain ways and do certain things, but they're capable of being damaged, aren't they? And so is true, such is true of our consciences. They're capable of being damaged. They're capable of becoming dysfunctional. They're capable even of being destroyed. And it's when the conscience becomes damaged and dysfunctional that it starts to misinform us about what's right and about what's wrong and about what's good in terms of our attitudes and behaviors. And that's a dangerous 
situation. And the way that the human conscience gets damaged and becomes dysfunctional and can even become destroyed is by exposure to sin and ungodliness. And so Paul, who says here that he has lived his life before God in all good conscience. His conscience has been healthy. It's been functioning properly and he's been listening to it and following it. As we're going to see today, Paul has a lot to say all throughout the New Testament about the human conscience and how it can become damaged and how we can keep it in good working order. The conscience can become damaged and dysfunctional by exposure to sin. Ideas, values, attitudes, behaviors that are contrary to the holiness and the righteousness of God and that dishonor God in His holiness. If we expose our conscience to those things, it damages it. Just like exposing the organs in your body to Harmful things can do damage, right? Like your lungs, if they get exposed to cigarette smoke over and over again or to other noxious, toxic chemicals, they start to get damaged. And then they start to become dysfunctional. They become less and less capable of delivering oxygen to the blood and to the tissues of our bodies, and they can even become destroyed, our lungs can, if the exposure is intense enough or prolonged enough. Or like brain cells that can become damaged and dysfunctional and destroyed by exposure to various chemicals and drugs or by being deprived of the oxygen that the cells and the tissue need. The the brain can become damaged either way by exposure to harmful things or by being deprived of necessary things. And that's exactly how it is also in a spiritual way with the human conscience. Exposure to the wrong things or depriving it of being exposed to the right things damages the conscience and causes it to malfunction and can destroy it. This is what I want for us to focus on and glean together today from God's Word as we continue to walk through these events in the life of the Apostle Paul as he counts the cost of following Jesus in his own life. And the only way that he can do that, that he can count that cost and continue to be faithful and obedient, even though the cost is so high, the only way he can do it, and the only way he's ever done it, is by following his conscience and maintaining a good conscience. You remember that Paul said back up in chapter 20 in verse 24 when he was in Miletus and speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus, he said, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The reason he says that and then sets his face to go to Jerusalem where he knows he will be bound and imprisoned and afflicted is because he's listening to his conscience. So from there, Paul made his way to Tyre, to Caesarea. He was surrounded, remember, with precious friends and brothers and sisters in Christ who were pleading with him not to go to Jerusalem. Don't go! Because they knew everything that was going to happen to him. 
because the Holy Spirit was prophesying. He would suffer, he would be bound, he'd be imprisoned, he'd be given over to the Gentiles, and who knows what they would do with him. But Paul went anyways because he was not compelled by his own will, his own fleshly desires, his own feelings, but by the will of God because his conscience was constrained by the Holy Spirit. And so he came to Jerusalem. He humbled himself, remember, in order to bless his Jewish Christian brothers there in Jerusalem. And then the unbelieving Jews recognized him in the temple, incited a riot in the temple by falsely accusing him, like we saw last week, and seizing Paul and trying to beat him to death outside of the temple until the providence of God prevailed and intervened through the Roman tribune as the soldiers hauled Paul out of there and then allowed him to plead with the Jews, to testify to the Jews of the sovereign power and glory of God in Jesus Christ. Because all along, Paul's motivated and driven by his conscience to do these things, even when it means he suffers. And so... The tribune let Paul last week testify to the Jews of the power and glory of God and Jesus Christ, hoping that that would succeed in calming the riotous Jews down, but that didn't work. They got more angry because they rejected the truth that Paul was proclaiming because in their hearts they had rejected God. And so they were starting to get even more riled up and to demand again for Paul to be put to death. And so the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, ordered Paul to be flogged. Remember? Maybe I can get him to confess under the pain of torture, whatever it is that he's done to enrage the Jews so much. But then again, by God's providence, he learned from Paul that Paul was a natural-born Roman citizen, And it would have been illegal for Lysias to have a citizen of Rome flogged without a proper trial. And Lysias himself could have been deposed or arrested or even killed for doing that. And so he was afraid, so he stopped the flogging. And that brings us here to chapter 23, now of the book of Acts. Lysias still needs to figure out what's going on with Paul. Who is this guy? What has he done? that's gotten the Jews so up in arms and provoked this riot in the temple. Nothing that the tribune has done so far has worked at all, and so now he figures that if he brings Paul before the Jewish leadership, which is the Jewish Sanhedrin, that maybe they can identify Paul's offenses. And that makes good sense, doesn't it? He's violated some custom of theirs. He's violated some law of theirs that got them all riled up. Let's have them tell us what, what Paul did. And so, this is what Lysias does. Verse 30 of chapter 22, where we left off last week, says that he commanded the council of Jewish religious leaders made up of chief priests and biblical and legal scholars and elders of the people, he commanded them to to come together and he brought Paul in and sat Paul down before them. The word council there is the Greek word sunedrion, and that's where the word Sanhedrin comes from. And that's who Lysias had called together to meet with Paul. This council of leaders over 
the Jewish religious community. Now, Lysias wasn't commanding the Sanhedrin to convene in a formal session where they would level legal charges against Paul and come to a conclusion and sentence him according to Jewish law. Lysias didn't have the authority to command them to do that, and he didn't want them to do that. He he wouldn't at all want to hand a Roman citizen over to a Jewish court before figuring out exactly what Paul had done. So what this was, was was more of an informal gathering for the purpose of fact-finding, for the purpose of having the Sanhedrin help Lysias figure out Paul's alleged crimes so that Lysias could make a decision about what to do about it. Now, the Sanhedrin was dominated by two main factions within the Jewish religious system, kind of like two different denominations, united by some foundational beliefs, but divided by some pretty significant differences in their understanding of the Scriptures and and certain doctrinal issues. And those two denominations, those two factions within Judaism, were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we're going to see next week how their differences became important in this story and, and in terms of what happens to Paul. But first, notice very carefully the very first thing that Luke records happening when Lysias brings Paul in to meet with the Jewish Sanhedrin. Verse 1 here of chapter 23, Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And it is that word conscience that I really want us to dig into. It's the word in Greek, sunadese. And the Greek lexicons define sunadese like this. It's the psychological faculty which can distinguish between right and wrong. You all have one. You all have a conscience, a psychological faculty that enables you to discern between right and wrong and that alerts you and, and, and causes you to feel differently about things that you perceive to be right and things that you perceive to be wrong. So when the lexicons say that this is a psychological faculty, what they mean is pertaining to the soul. The Greek word suke means soul and is the word from which we get our words like psychology from. The study of the soul. Is, is what psychology literally means, even though in our modern sort of post-enlightenment, post-scientific revolution world that we live in now today, psychologists don't even believe in the soul anymore. Nowadays, they only believe in what's physical and not in anything that's spiritual. And so their study of psychology, their study of the soul, isn't, isn't in their minds even a study of the soul. It's limited to the body. It's limited to the physiological sort of chemical realities of our brains and our bodies. That's, that's as deep as they get, which is one big reason why their conclusions about human behavior are so often so fatally flawed. Because God, who made us in His own image, the designer Himself, very clearly tells us that human beings are made up of both bodies and souls. Suitcase. So the, the conscience is this faculty of the human soul 
which can distinguish between right and wrong. It is the soul's moral sensitivity. That's what the conscience is. And here, the very first thing that Paul wants to try to assure these Jewish leaders of is that he has lived his life before God in all good conscience. They're accusing him of severe blasphemies and crimes against God Himself. And he says, no, brothers. I've been living according to my conscience and my conscience is in good shape. It hasn't become damaged or dysfunctional. It's been constrained by the Word of God. It's been well informed. It's strong. It's good. And I've been following it all this time. And that's how Paul could come in there before them and face them in the way that he did. How would you feel? How would you, if, if you were dragged in before the Sanhedrin who wanted to kill you, and it's just you and, and all those guys, how, would you be shaken in your boots? Paul wasn't cowering. Paul wasn't trembling with fear. Paul wasn't intimidated by them. Paul wasn't staring down at his feet the whole time. Paul came in there, Luke says, and looked intently at the council. Looked them right in the eye. Held their gaze. Fixed their stare because he was unafraid. Because it didn't matter to him what they thought of him nearly so much as what God thought. He knew that he'd been living with integrity before the Almighty God of the universe, and so he had nothing to fear. And I hope that's the way that we live our lives. Allowing God to be the one to constrain what we do and don't do, say and don't say, instead of the forces around us, the culture around us, the people around us, or our own feelings and circumstances. Paul was a citizen of Tarsus. Uh, He was an educated man. It was a cosmopolitan city. He was a citizen of Rome. He was a citizen of Jerusalem. He had been a Pharisee before. But most importantly, Paul was a citizen of the kingdom of God. And he didn't let anything else inform the way that he lived more than the will of God and the word of God through his conscience. So he comes in there knowing he's done nothing wrong, that he'd, all he'd done for the past 25 years as a Christian, all of it was in accordance with the will of God and the Word of God. And by saying that, he immediately puts the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, on the defensive because, see, they're opposing him. They're claiming that he's violated God's will and that he's blasphemed God and dishonored God. But here what he's saying is, no, I've been living in absolute obedience to God, which means implicitly that in opposing him, they're actually opposing God. Which is why Ananias, the high priest, orders Paul to just be punched in the mouth. We'll look at it more carefully next week. It's not a slap. It's a a hard hit in the mouth But we'll look at that next time. Today, I want to talk about conscience and how God's Word reveals to us how it works. Paul says, 
that he's lived his life before God in all good conscience. If you have the New American Standard translation, it says that he's lived his life before God in perfectly good conscience. Uh, I don't love that translation. I'm not sure why they chose the word perfect there. It's just the Greek word pantos, which means all. And that's why every other translation says all good conscience, not perfectly good conscience. It's important to realize that when Paul says he's lived his life in all good conscience, he's not claiming to have actually lived a perfect, sinless life as a Christian. We know that because Paul never hesitates, right? In his writings all throughout the New Testament to confess the sin that remains in him. Wretched man that I am, he declares at the end of Romans 7, right? I'm the foremost of sinners, he says to Timothy near the end of his life, right? Paul isn't claiming to have lived in sinless perfection here. What he's saying is that he knows that he's innocent of the things that he's been accused of because his conscience is clear in all those ways. And that's what we all need to be able to say in our lives. It's so utterly important that we understand that God has given us all a conscience, that we understand how conscience works, and that we learn to listen to our consciences in our lives so that we can say, what I've been doing, my conscience is clear. In Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul describes how the Gentiles... And in that passage, he means unbelieving Gentiles, people who were in their sins, unregenerate people. And he says they don't even have the law. They're not like Jewish unbelievers even. Jewish unbelievers at least have the Scriptures in which the law of God is revealed. But these Gentiles don't have the Scriptures, the Word of God that reveals the law of God. And so these unbelieving, unregenerate Gentiles who don't have the law of God in a written book, Paul says in Romans 2, are still able sometimes, Paul says, by nature to do what the law requires. Even though they've never read If they've never seen what God says is right, how do they know how to do what's right sometimes? Because, he says in that passage, the work of the law is written on their hearts and their conscience also bears witness to what God defines as right and wrong. And so God's Word teaches very clearly that every single human being has God's law, His definition of right and wrong, written on their hearts, and that their consciences testify to God's definition of what is right and wrong. So then, why don't all people follow God's law all the time? Because even though it's written on their hearts, even though their consciences testify to it in their sin, They don't want to do what God requires. And so they suppress His truth in their unrighteousness. And like sheep, they go astray from it. And they do what's right in their own eyes according to their own sinful desires instead. And when they do that, they damage their consciences. And their consciences start to become dysfunctional. And so that's why you have people who 50, 60 years ago 
might have been absolutely appalled by the thought of scraping a living human infant out of its mother's womb. And then 50 or 60 years later, that same person might be holding up a sign and fighting for the right to do that. Because their conscience has become destroyed and dysfunctional because of the progression of false teaching in their minds and sin in their lives. So again, the thing about the human conscience is that that when we do that, when we ignore God's law, when we go against God's law, when we follow after the sinful desires of our own hearts instead of listening to God's truth and law, we damage our consciences and alter them in ways that lead to destruction. So, understand the conscience is not the same thing as the Holy Spirit's voice in us. It's a a faculty of our human souls, of our humanness, and it's not infallible like the Holy Spirit is. It's, It's capable of erring, especially when it becomes exposed to error, falsehood, ungodliness. Our, our consciences prompt us in the direction of, of what's right and what's wrong, but they do that based on whatever standard of morality, whatever standard of right and wrong, we've exposed ourselves to and accepted for our lives. That's, that's how the conscience gets damaged and dysfunctional. So even Paul, for example, right? Once, before Christ, in following his conscience, he persecuted Christians. And according to Jesus' words and to him on the Damascus Road, he, he persecuted Christ himself because he had damaged his conscience for so long by exposing it to his own sinful pride and to wrong understandings of God's word that it wasn't working right. It wasn't functioning. It was skewed. It was distorted. It was perverted. It was permitting him to do things that God actually hates. And so you see how important it is to understand conscience. And to understand how it works. And to understand how to keep it in good working order. John MacArthur uses a a really great illustration from real life of an airliner full of passengers that crashed because it was flying in the clouds. The pilots had no visibility. And the plane flew straight into the side of a mountain and, and exploded. Now the plane was equipped with radar and terrain sensing equipment and a cockpit alarm that warned the pilots if they were flying too low or if the terrain was rising in front of them. Which was exactly the case here. They were flying through the clouds. A mountain was rising up in front of them. They couldn't see it, but the aircraft sensors knew it. And so the alarm rang in the cockpit. It was an actual voice that started saying, too low, pull up. Too low, pull up. Terrain, pull up. But... Later, when they recovered the wreckage, they found the cockpit recorder and they played the tape of what happened in the cockpit and they heard the the warning go, pull up, pull up, pull up. And they heard the pilot say, shut up and turn it off. 
And the plane crashed into the side of the mountain and killed everyone on board. Listen, Christians, your God-given conscience is like that terrain warning system. And it is absolutely imperative to keep it functioning properly and for you to listen to it and not shut it off in your life. Because when you do, and if you do, disaster follows. Now we also need to understand a few important ways that the conscience can be weakened and can be wounded and can be defiled. Those are actually the words that Paul uses elsewhere in the Scriptures to talk about various things that we can do to weaken or wound or defile our consciences or to do that to the consciences of other people. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We actually talked about this passage a few weeks ago when we saw Paul laying down his own freedoms. Remember, his own liberties in Jerusalem and deferring to the consciences of his brothers in Christ by joining them in a Jewish ceremony of purification that Paul knew he didn't have to participate in, but he chose to because these guys' consciences were bound by that and he wanted to be sensitive to their consciences. So we talked about this teaching that he gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And what he's doing in this chapter is he's urging the Christians in Corinth to do the same thing with one another that he had done with those Christian brothers in Jerusalem. The context here, 1 Corinthians 8, you'll remember this is where there was meat being sold in the marketplace and that meat had been obtained by by pagan false worship ceremonies that were going on in the temples where where animals were sacrificed to false gods and then they'd take the meat down the hill and sell it in the marketplace. And some Christians in Corinth felt in their consciences that eating that meat equaled participating in the idolatry. So they didn't want to do it. But other Christians realized because they knew, because they understood, because they'd been taught. And so their consciences were better informed and stronger. They realized it's just meat. And they're free to eat it because God made the meat. And the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. They're okay to eat the meat so long as they don't go and participate in the actual worship of the false gods up in the temple. And Paul, remember, Paul agreed with those people. Paul affirmed that in reality they had the freedom before God, the liberty to eat that meat. But what he shows here in 1 Corinthians 8 is falsehood weakens the conscience whereas truth strengthens it. That's the first thing he he highlights here. And so in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 8, Paul points to truth that God reveals, truth that God establishes, and says, look, the idol that's being worshipped up in that temple has no actual real existence, right? They're worshipping a false God up there, and the false God that they're worshipping is, is actually false. It really is false. It's not real, right? The Romans and the Greeks just, just made up all of those gods in their pantheons. They're not really up there somewhere in the clouds. The truth is, he says, there's only one true God, verse 6. 
the Father from whom are all things and for whom we all exist. And there's only one Lord, one Master, Jesus Christ, through whom we all were made, through whom we all exist. That's truth. That's reality. Let that inform your conscience. And when you do, it will make your conscience strong. Jesus is the maker of the goats and the cows. And the goats and the cows, even though they're being misused in the false worship, God made them and so they're good in and of themselves. And and it's not like when they were sacrificed to these false gods that they somehow became spiritually contaminated by false gods that don't even exist. So you can eat that meat that came from the false worship of the false God, so long as you don't dishonor the true God by going and actually participating in worship of a God that doesn't exist. They're separate. The meat and the idolatry are separate. But, but people who had misinformed minds and consciences were equating the two. And Paul calls that weakness. And look at what he says in verse 7. Not all possess this knowledge. Some of the Christians there in Corinth had not learned yet the truths that the true God reveals, and so their consciences were misinformed, and that's, that causes them, Paul says, to be weak. So, number one, consciences can be weakened by being poorly taught, by not being rightly informed by the truth that God reveals, by thinking things and believing things that are false, that are wrong. That's why we tried really, really hard, Wendy and I, to be careful about what we taught our kids and to be really careful about who we let teach our kids. And we felt, and this was just us, but if we, we felt like if we sent them over there to that school where I, I went to school, Wendy went to school way back in the 80s, and it was bad then, and it's not gotten better in Santa Cruz. We felt like if we send them there for six or eight hours a day, they're going to be filling their minds with stuff that's not even real, not even true, that's false, that's, that's taught. They're going to weaken my boy's consciences. And, and that could lead to disaster down the road. It's really, really, really important to make sure that our minds and our consciences are rightly informed with what God says is true because it strengthens them. And in Corinth, here's what was happening. There were people with strong consciences and people with weak consciences. And what was happening is that the people whose consciences were strengthened by the truth of God and His Word, they were enjoying their freedom. They were enjoying their liberty to eat that meat that was sold in the marketplace. But they were doing it carelessly, without considering what impact they might be having on the people with the weaker consciences. People who didn't yet understand and who thought that the false gods had contaminated that meat and that to eat that meat was equal to worshiping the false gods. So Paul says at the end of verse 7, some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. They're equating it. They believe that if you eat it, you're worshiping the idol. And their conscience then being weak is defiled. Do you see what's happening? In their lack of understanding and in the weakness of their conscience, they're equating the meat with the idolatry. And then, 
wanting to fit in with the more knowledgeable, more mature Christians, right? Not wanting to be looked down on as weaker ones. They're joining, even though their consciences are weak in this area, they're joining in and eating this meat, thinking, see, that the mature Christians aren't just saying that it's okay to eat the meat, thinking that it's okay. The mature ones are saying, don't worry about the idolatry. Now, one was okay and one wasn't. Eating the meat is okay. The idolatry is not okay, but the weaker conscience people couldn't separate those things. And so what they thought was that the more mature Christians were telling them, you don't need to worry about idolatry in your lives. And so for them, eating that meat was defiling their consciences. The end result in Corinth was the well-informed, mature Christians with strong consciences who understood that eating meat doesn't equal idolatry. They were using that liberty carelessly so that the newer, less mature Christians with weaker consciences ended up violating their consciences. And so the mature Christians weren't helping people's consciences get stronger by teaching them and patiently exposing them to more truth. They were actually helping people and training people to ignore their consciences, like like shutting off the, the cockpit warning system. Be careful that you don't do that to other people. Paul knows that whether your conscience is weak or strong, it is absolutely disastrous to to ignore your conscience and to make a habit of doing that. Because ignoring it damages it, ignoring it defiles it. And so he says, look at verse 12 here, 1 Corinthians 8. He says, to the stronger Christians, it's sin to use your liberty carelessly in the presence of people with weaker consciences, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Because by teaching people to do something that their conscience thinks is wrong, they're they're wounding people's weak conscience. They're teaching people to ignore and defile their conscience, which is disastrous because someday they'll ignore their conscience about something that actually is wicked. Like, sexual immorality or drunk because they've wounded and weakened their consciences even more drunkenness violence any other vice that god forbids they'll be more susceptible and vulnerable to because you've wounded their conscience you've not strengthened it over in romans 14 this is why paul says do not don't you dare for the sake of food for the sake of your liberty to eat meat Don't you dare destroy the work of God for the sake of your freedom. He says everything is clean. The meat's clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another one stumble by what he eats, by exercising their liberty. Be careful, right? If you have to give up your liberty, whatever it is, the food, The glass of wine, the movie, the TV show, the music, the game, the act, whatever it is that God doesn't actually forbid in His Word, that you know in your conscience, which has been informed by God's Word, that you're free to enjoy. If you have to give it up, instead of enjoying it with a person whose conscience is weaker and, and, and ending up wounding their conscience and teaching them to ignore it and causing them to defile it, then by all means, give it up. Love them more than you love your liberty. Love them enough to lay your freedoms aside. Because you can defile somebody's conscience. You can wound somebody's conscience, and that leads to 
disaster and sets them up for a fall. That's why Paul did what he did in Jerusalem with those men. And he's saying, this is, this is how I've tried to live my life all along. So, the human conscience, the, the, the God-given faculty of the soul that distinguishes between right and wrong can be weakened by falsehood, can be defiled by misinforming it, by ignoring it, by neglecting it, and by doing things that the conscience says is wrong, by doing them anyways. Now, turn over to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul is talking about false teachers. They used to be in the church. They used to be who we would call brothers, but they've departed from the truth, from the faith, and now they are devoting themselves. That's a big word that he uses. They're not just dabbling in sinful things. They are devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, he says, and teachings of demons. They're indulging in wickedness and godlessness of all kinds. He, he, he says it, it comes from unclean spirits and the teachings of demons. And he doesn't just mean scary, spooky, occultic activity. That's part of it. But, but what he means is anything that Satan would promote and tempt you with in order to turn you away from what is right and true and turn you away from God. Anything, any false teaching, any spiritual practice that doesn't promote God's glory, any fleshly sinful temptation that violates God's word and that dishonors God. And he says, look at verse 2 of 1 Timothy 4, he says that these people have been drawn into this sinful indulgence by people who are liars, false teachers themselves, whose consciences are seared, and who are promoting all kinds of falsehood and ungodly deceptions because of it. Look at that word seared. It means exactly what you think it means. The English word seared is a perfect translation of that Greek word. If you take a cast iron pan and you heat that thing up on your stove so that it's ripping hot and then you drop a piece of steak onto it and that steak immediately starts to sizzle, after a minute, you pick the steak up and it's, and it's seared, right? Which is a good thing with the steak. But you do it to your conscience, it's a bad thing. Picture a cattle farmer. And he needs to brand his cattle. And so he takes a branding iron and he puts it not just into the wood fire that he built to heat his coffee up. He puts it into the hottest fire sometimes even a furnace, until that iron is literally glowing red-orange. And then he brands the cow with it, searing its flesh. And you know why it's not absolutely and utterly cruel for him to do that? Because a good farmer knows how to do it right, and knows that if you get that branding iron hot enough, and push it into that cattle's flesh, then it only hurts the cattle for, for a bare second because it's so hot that it sears the nerves dead just that fast. Now that is what Paul has in mind here when he says that people have seared their 
consciences. He means that they have indulged in enough sin for enough time that their consciences are so seared that they don't feel anything anymore in terms of what's right or wrong. Their consciences have become so covered with scar tissue from ongoing habitual compromise and sin that they no longer, their consciences no longer respond to the things that God uses to, to prod us in terms of truth and righteousness. The law of God that He writes on our hearts prods us towards truth and righteousness. The calling of the Holy Spirit, the testimony of the living active Word of God, right? Those are, that's the, the conscience, the cockpit warning system. You indulge in enough sin for long enough and it sears your conscience and you're shutting off the cockpit. It doesn't even work anymore. It's, it's malfunctioning. And you've shut it down. And people who do that are flying headlong towards destruction. They're doing things that are destructive. They're ripping at the very fabric of this universe morally that God has designed things to work by. And it's causing destruction And not just in that temporal sense, but for them in an eternal sense. So, be very careful not to weaken your conscience. Be very careful not to defile your conscience. Be very, very careful not to inadvertently even weaken or wound or defile someone else's conscience and be certain that you are not searing your conscience and numbing it and making it progressively less and less responsive to God's Word. Now on the other side of this coin, God's Word teaches that in its living, active power, the Word of God is able to instruct our consciences and strengthen them. To inform them with God-given truth and build them up and make them strong so that they do what God designed them to do in, in, in helping us know right and wrong and keep away from error and keep away from destruction. So instructed and informed consciences are strengthened by God's Word and so they are able to alert us to things that are right and wrong so that when we make it a, a habit by God's grace of listening to our consciences, then we're making wise decisions, good decisions, which results in blessing in our lives as we honor God and and, and our ability also to, to bless other people. And so in His Word, God commends a good conscience, a conscience that is full of integrity, not just well informed, but it's strengthened, it's built up, and it's stable, it's solid, it's working right 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, the goal of our instruction, the, the whole point of everything we're teaching here, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. A conscience of good integrity and a sincere faith. That's, that's what we want. We want to teach you God's Word in such depth and with such power that the result will be Purified hearts, strengthened consciences, and sincere faith. Because if you live according to that, you're not going to crash into that mountain. 
Peter says in 1 Peter 3, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Expose yourself to the glory of Christ. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And that is what Paul is doing in the book of Acts. He says over in chapter 24 of of the book of Acts, I always take pains to have a clear conscience before both God and man. And that is such a profoundly important example for us to follow in our lives, right? Do you take pains to have a clear conscience? conscience, to make sure that the things that you are doing in your lives, the ways that you are living towards one another, what you're allowing yourself to look upon, think upon, do when no one else is looking, are you making sure, are you taking pains that in all of the things in your life, your conscience is clear. It's well informed by God's Word. It's functioning according to God's Word. It's, it's strengthened by God's Word. It's alerting you to right and wrong. You're listening to it. You're following it. And so it's clear. And you can say, I haven't been perfect. And we'll see next week, Paul wasn't perfect. Paul kind of blows it over in Acts chapter 23 a little bit. And then confesses it, acknowledges it, makes it right. Do you take pains to have a clear conscience in what you do, and even when you do things that are wrong, to deal with it, to make it right so that you do not sear your conscience? Where does that come from? How do we, how do we take pains to have a clear conscience? Jason used a word in our Bible study this last week, which was good. He used the word marinated. To talk about our hearts with relation to God's word. Marinated, like a, like a piece of meat in a rich marinade that seasons it, that tenderizes it, that makes it savory. A good, strong, well-informed, clear conscience comes from marinating our minds and our hearts in the word of God. Right? Which means you don't just dash a little bit of it on there, you soak it marinating our minds and hearts in the Word of God, letting it season us, letting it tenderize our minds and our consciences and and thereby our lives. Hebrews 9 says, a clear conscience comes from saturating ourselves with the Gospel and the truth of the forgiveness of our sins that comes through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Because we're not going to be perfect. We're going to violate conscience sometimes. We're going to do what's wrong sometimes. We're even going to realize my conscience was weak and wounded from years of neglect and sin and not understanding the Word. And so I was doing something that I didn't even feel bad about. Because my conscience was malfunctioning. And all of a sudden from God's Word, I learned that it was wrong and my conscience is bothered. What do I do now? You soak your conscience with the gospel that teaches you that Jesus died for those sins. Here's what Hebrews 9 says. 
It says that if the Old Testament sacrifices and all the blood of the bulls and goats that was shed in the Old Testament was able to purify outwardly the flesh, the body, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? You see? The Gospel purifies our consciences. It frees us from guilt. It frees us from shame. And it allows us to walk according to truth and righteousness because it trains our hearts in love and in gratitude towards God to honor Him. A clear conscience comes, Hebrews 10 says, from drawing near to our God in worship, in unceasing prayer and constant communion with Him. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Drawing near to God purifies, cleanses, strengthens our consciences. All of that is how you take pains to have a clear conscience. You inform your conscience and strengthen it with the living Word of God. You purify your conscience by saturating it over and over and over and over with the Gospel. Going there, going to Christ, going to the cross, going to the One who doesn't condemn you every time you sin, every time you repent of sin suffusing your conscience with the aroma of God's great love that casts out all fear and all guilt and all shame and instills gratitude and love in you for Him and causes sin to seem rancid and holiness to be sweet and to flourish in our lives. And you train yourself more and more and more to listen to your God-given, truth-forged, gospel-purified conscience instead of ignoring it and and, and you train yourself to follow it instead of following after your own selfish and sinful desires and searing your conscience. You train yourself for that more and more, the more and more you draw near to God. Don't be far from Him. He says, "If, if you draw near to me, I promise I'll draw near to you. If you confess your sins, I promise there will always be forgiveness and assurance of my pardon and that I don't condemn you. If you draw near, I promise to lavish you with all of the mercy and the grace that you need. If you commune with your God as a beloved child coming to an adoring father, then you will rest and you will bask and you will revel in His goodness and His grace and in the beauty of His holiness and your conscience will be strengthened and purified and cleansed and you will learn to trust it and listen to it and follow it because when you do, there is greater blessing from your God than anything you could hope to find in this world, any passing pleasure that you might be tempted to indulge in by ignoring and defiling and weakening and wounding and searing your conscience. And so in Acts 23, Paul was, was desperate for the leaders of the Sanhedrin to know that he always took pains to have a clear conscience before God and men. That he wasn't driven by his own sinful, prideful heart and desires. That even though he did sin, even though he wasn't perfect, 
even though he was constantly at war with his own flesh, that he labored by God's grace to be constantly strengthening and purifying his conscience and to listen to it and to follow it, even when it cost him, even when following conscience meant suffering bodily. And so even here in the midst of Paul's big conflict, which had almost gotten him beat to death, and that had resulted in him being bound by Roman chains and dragged now before the Sanhedrin, Paul doesn't let his circumstances or his personal feelings or worldly ways, he doesn't let any of that dictate what he does. He doesn't give himself permission to say, well, I've been mistreated, so I'm going to give some of that back. He listens to his conscience. He follows his conscience. In 1521, we'll close here, Martin Luther was hauled before his accusers, very much like Paul, at the imperial assembly of the Holy Roman Empire in the city of Worms. And Luther was told that he had to recant of everything that he had taught that they were accusing him of being in conflict with the Roman Catholic Church. And the consequences would be severe, and Luther knew it, if he did not recant. This was life and death, potentially, if he did not recant. And knowing how high the cost was, Luther very, very famously stood there all alone, just him and his accusers, and said, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, My conscience is captive to the Word of God. And I cannot, and I will not, recant anything because to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand, I can do no other. Have at me if you must. Kill me if you must, but I will not go against my conscience. Christians, the Almighty God who made you in His image fashioned your soul with a conscience and it is never right, it is never safe to go against your conscience, to follow any other guide because to follow any other guide is a sure pathway to destruction. And the only way to make sure that your God-given conscience is a reliable guide is to make it captive to the Word of God alone. To make God's holy, infallible, living word the sole basis for what you believe to be right and good and beautiful. To make sure that you never sear it and dull it by indulging in sin instead of taking pains to maintain a clear conscience. By informing your conscience. By strengthening your conscience in God's word. By cleansing your conscience regularly whenever you've succumbed to sin in the gospel. And the mercy of God's grace and love in Christ. And by drawing near to God, your Father, more and more and more. And resting in His goodness, in His grace. And reveling in the beauty of His holiness. Are you doing all that? With your conscience. We spend so much time being careful what we eat. Being careful to exercise. Being careful because because we don't want to have disastrous long-term effects on our hearts, on our lungs, on our brains. What about your conscience? Are you strengthening it or are you ignoring it, neglecting it, misinforming it, letting it be 
influenced by toxic stuff in the world, weakening it by worldliness and falsehood? Are you turning it off when it's saying something you don't want to hear? Pull up, pull up. I don't want to hear that. I like the, I like the course I'm flying. Are you searing it? Are you desensitizing it? Are you debilitating it by indulging in sinful desires? Or are you taking pains to strengthen your conscience and make sure that it is captive to God's word and constantly being cleansed in the blood of God's great mercy and grace? Let's pray together today and then let's sing to our God and then let's draw near together to Him at the Lord's table and confess our sins and drink deeply of that conscience-cleansing grace that is in Christ alone. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we pray that the double-edged sword of Your Word would do its work in our lives this morning and that You would help us and strengthen us to be able to do all that is necessary by Your grace and through Your Word and by the power of Your indwelling Holy Spirit to make sure that our consciences are clear and strong, and working properly and well-informed, and that we are listening and following for the sake of your glory and our safety and the good of your people. And so, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.